Welcome back to the program. From the days of Caligula right on through the Clintons, the role of first ladies has always been complex, political, and sometimes exotic. What's interesting is how we often ignore the role of these first ladies in nations other than our own, when in fact they've often played a key role in determining American policy. Perhaps nowhere has this been more true than in Vietnam in the early 1960s. There, Madame Nu, the young and glamorous First Lady of South Vietnam, would play a key role in one of the darkest chapters of American history. Her perception as the Dragon Lady only added to the U.S. government decision to support the coup that would topple the South Vietnamese ruling government in 1963. Her husband and brother-in-law were murdered, and the war in Vietnam would be forever escalated. For years, no one really knew what happened to Madame Nu, until my guest, Monique Desmarais, would track her down. No easy task. Monique Desmarais took her first trip to Vietnam in 1997 as part of a study abroad program in college. She received her master's in East Asia Regional Studies from Harvard, and she was a recipient of a U.S. Department of Education grant to attend the Vietnamese Advanced Study Institute in Hanoi. It is my pleasure to welcome Monique Desmarais here to talk about her new book, Finding the Dragon Lady, The Mystery of Madame Nu. Monique, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate you having me. Thanks, Jeff. Delight to have you here. There were some of us that remember that time vividly, that lived through that time. Talk about what got you interested in it. It was not a period of time that, that you lived through, but, but you became fascinated with not only with Madame Nu, but this whole period of Vietnam. Talk a little about that. I certainly did. Um, I think it had something to do with my father being an American and my mother being French. And so I really felt this pull to... Uh, Vietnam, because it was so linked to both of those countries um, in a period before I was born. So it was something I could really only imagine from the safe sort of suburbs of Chicago in the 1980s. Um, and the war was something that no one around me would really talk about, because the grown-ups that had been there certainly weren't ready to discuss it anymore. They were ready to put it behind them. And those who hadn't been to Vietnam, I think, were wrestling with really complicated feelings of um, of perhaps being against the war or feeling guilt for not being supportive of the of the troops who had come back. So um, it, <laughs> there's nothing like not talking about something that makes something more interesting. So Madame Nu in particular was interesting to me because um, my parents had these books about, well, they had books on everything. But as I said, I really felt this pull to Southeast Asia and, and Vietnam in particular. And in these books about the war, there were the typical pictures that we imagine when we think of the Vietnam War. There were helicopters and napalm and sort of really horrible, horrific images. And then in the middle of this sort of death and destruction is this beautiful very elegant, stylish woman, smiling out, and it's the caption beneath her, and I, I don't have the book anymore, so I, I, but it said something like, she's the face of evil or something, so I was just sucked in right away. And in fact, JFK thought she was the face of evil. Kennedy had uh, an awful lot of contempt for her at the time. That is correct. Um, by the end of uh, 1963, you know, he he made a comment to his friend, um, you know, just basically laying the blame for the coup on her pretty squarely, saying, you know, if it wasn't for her, and he called her, you know, a, a, a not nice name, um, we we wouldn't have had to go in and, and kill these these men. What was it about her that at least he perceived as being such a catalyst to the reason why the U.S. needed to overthrow 
her husband and brother-in-law? Well, I think it was the ambassador to South Vietnam, uh, Henry Cabot Lodge, who, who said it best, and he said it some years after the Vietnam War, but he said something to the effect of, you know, the U.S. can support a dictator, but we can't support a dictator, you know, who talks about being a dictator. So it, it was more that she just, she, she said, um, she said the wrong thing at the wrong time, and she refused to sort of be quieted down. And I think that was really the, the problem. The United States was really trying to make um, a show of democracy in South Vietnam and make this a, a, a safe place from communism that was, you know, taking over the rest of Southeast Asia. And Madame Mu was the face of this regime that the Americans were supporting and trying to say, hey, this is a great alternative to communism. And, and Madame Mu's talking about barbecuing monks, and she's calling the Americans very, you know, she's very ungrateful about the fact that they're over there calling them little soldiers of fortune. Um, so it, it became a hard sell, in other words, to, uh, for Kennedy and the rest of his administration to continue to proclaim South Vietnam was, hey, we're doing a great job over there, uh, just never mind Never mind the, the people that we're supporting. We never really had a clear understanding of how much influence she really had. I mean, our intelligence at the time was, was sketchy at best. We were really never clear how much she was influencing policy or not. That is correct. And I think that her influence was very much behind the scenes. I think that she was um, a big part of her husband's um, her husband and brother-in-law's decision-making on some things, and in other ways she was not. But she had her own agenda and really pushed through, uh, pushed through different things to make the life for South Vietnamese women uh, more modern. She um, she allowed she she passed some laws that allowed women to own property for the first time, to open bank accounts. She outlawed polygamy, but then she did these totally <laughs> sort of wildly absurd laws as well, um, which she defended just as heartily. You know, she outlawed divorce. She outlawed dancing. She outlawed uh, underwire bras. Um, so all of, <laughs> all of these things were sort of part and parcel of her, of her image. One of the things that makes the story particularly interesting, even in a contemporary sense, is some of the issues that she faced, some of the problems she faced, were very contemporary in terms of issues of women in politics and women behind the scenes in politics today. I agree with you. I think that she was really the one of the first women to um, to have to confront this, especially um, in Asia. The stereotypes about women at that time were that they should be, you know, kind of behind the silk curtains, serving tea, very very submissive, and Madame Nu was really anything but. Um, but it's not like it's not like there were a lot of role models around the world for her to to emulate, um, because there weren't a lot of women in politics at that time. And um, and the criticisms that Madame Nu faced for being frivolous, for caring about what she wore, um, they, those are all things that are still lobbed at women today. We care very much what our aspiring politicians um, spend on their outfits when they go out campaigning. And and yet, if she goes out campaigning in something frumpy, um, you know, she's just as likely to be to be scorned. So, it, she w- Madame Nu really was uh, dealing with a lot of problems at the forefront of women becoming more public political figures. 
And this coup took place, for our listeners that, that may not remember, in 1963. It was really a very brutal coup, a brutal execution of her husband and brother-in-law. Talk a little bit about what happened to her at that time. Madame New was out of the country. She was traveling in the United States. She had sort of decided that she could come over to the United States and, and change, um, change the public perception of her family's regime. So that wasn't, wasn't always very successful, but she traveled from coast to coast. She started in New York, and she wound her way down through Washington, Chicago, and she ended up um, at the time of the coup in Beverly Hills. And she's staying at the hotel there when she hears of the coup. And um, it, was, it was a coup that had been approved in theory by Washington back in August. Of the, there was a cable that was sent by Kennedy on August 24th, Giving the uh, giving the okay to for the Americans to support a South Vietnamese coup. So um, leading up to that time of November first, there had been um, some some false starts, some some back and forth. But on November first, this this coup started, and Madame New was was out of the country. She was not killed, but her brother, or her brother-in-law, and her husband um, were. They, they took refuge in a church in Chinatown, and uh, when they surrendered, they came to get them, the, the South Vietnamese generals who were in charge of the coup, they came to get them in an armored car, and Diem and Nu were not seen alive again, so they were shot probably in the back of that armored car, although no one knows quite for sure. Um, Madame News had this statue in downtown Saigon, and um, people said that she had had it carved to look like her. It had some facial features that looked like her. It had the same sort of body shape, and um, and it was of the Chung sisters, which were ancient Vietnamese heroines that Madame Nu was always saying, you know, she was the modern incarnation of these Chung sisters. So this statue was pulled down a little bit like what happened in, in Baghdad, right, with the statue mm-hmm. of Saddam Hussein. The, the statue was pulled down at some point after the coup, and Madame Nu's head was cut off, and sort of rolled through the streets of Saigon, and I found this just terrific picture um, of these people just celebrating and jumping on the head of this humongous statue. Um, so it was really, there was a lot of anger at her, and she never went back to Vietnam. And interestingly enough, you know, again, for those that don't, that don't remember, this was a regime that, that we helped put in power, that we supported, and then were responsible for taking down. Correct. There's there's a lot of research about how much we did to actually put them in power. It was negotiated during the Geneva Agreement. So in 1954, uh, Vietnam was split into two halves. The North was the uh, communist, and it was led by the it was led by Ho Chi Minh and his communist government. And the South was going to be free. But there was a lot of debate about who was going to lead this free country. And the United States um, actually we. <laughs> There's a lot of debate about how exactly Diem emerged as the front runner, but it was clear that there was a lot of American doubt at the very beginning about whether he was really going to succeed. And, um, and there were some really negative reports that got sent back from Saigon to Washington saying, this guy is just not going to make it. But Diem really changed everyone's opinion um, when he faced down some gangsters. They were called the Bing Thuyen, and they were river pirates, and they had... Um, they had been running the police. They had been running the gambling dens. They sort of, um, they ran all of all of the city mechanics of Saigon, and they and they owned a lot of property and money, and uh, and they were challenging ZM. And he was such a moral 
upstanding guy, anti-corruption, he just wasn't going to play along. So this showdown happened. People were fighting in the streets. Um, a lot of people were killed, but uh, ZM emerged victorious, and that sort of set the tone and changed the American opinion about him, and they began calling him the miracle man of Southeast Asia. So from then on, there was a much, until the early 1960s, so from about 55 until about 61, 62, there was really a firm American commitment to, to this man in Saigon. Tell us a little bit about your decision to track her down and to see what you could find out. Well, it started after graduate school. I realized that, you know, I'd always been interested in this woman, and, and when I did a really simple uh, library search, I couldn't find a single book that had been written about her. And I thought that was strange, and so I started digging through old articles. <laughs> At the time, it was sort of, I was still looking on microfiches at the, at the library, and I found this article about her parents. And her parents had been living in exile in, in Georgetown, outside of Washington, D.C., and um, in 1986, they had been murdered by Madame New's younger brother. Well, I was just, I just couldn't believe that no one had followed up on, on this story. And what I, what I didn't find was any type of obituary for Madame New, which meant that she was probably still alive. So I started digging, and I just, I just thought <laughs> that if nobody had found her, um, perhaps I, I should try. And sure enough, um, I, there was, a, there was a, an article on a Vietnamese website um, that I really painstakingly translated, and I thought I understood that, that this man who had written this article claimed that he had gone to Madame New's kitchen apartment, you know, kitchen in her apartment, and she had been on the, you know, 12, I think, I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me, but I think it was the 12th floor, and that you could see the Eiffel Tower. And everything else I had read said, oh, yeah, Madame New is probably still in Rome, which is where she had property and she had lived there after the coup. Um, but this guy said Paris, and he was very clear, 12th floor, Eiffel Tower. So along the way in, in my research, I had found an old uh, letter written by Madame New, and, and it had a Paris return address. So I went to that Paris return address thinking, wouldn't that be something if 50 years later she's still staying here? And when I looked up, I was so disappointed because, um, because it, wasn't, it wasn't nearly 12 stories high. <laughs> and I quickly realized that not much in Paris around the Eiffel Tower is that tall. So I, so I proceeded to walk around <laughs> in circles until I found some buildings that were tall enough. And, then, um, and that's, and that's kind of how I found her. And talk a little bit about how difficult it was for you to get her to trust you, this kind of cat and mouse game that you played for, for a long time. She was really, obviously, very distrusting of people trying to get her story. I mean, she had she had so many losses in her life. She she had uh, lost her husband and brother-in-law and all of her power, and um, and so when we first started talking, she made sure that none, no one in my family was remotely connected to the government. Um, and for a long time, she really she set up some strict rules about how we could talk, when we could talk. Um, she never laid these rules out about what I was allowed to ask, but it was very clear that when I steered the conversation to a direction she didn't like, she would either, you know, cut off the conversation or steer me firmly back the other way. Um, it wasn't until I was uh, pregnant and had my, had my first son that she really opened up, that she began to see me, I think, as um, less, of a, less of a journalist trying to get her story and more of just a a curious woman um, 
she opened up to me about her family and and being a mother and, and what that had meant to her. And it was a little bit this softer side of the dragon lady that she let come through. And in many ways, she was very maternal when she spoke to me about my family. I was checking, you know, giving me advice and um, really. And and then in the next breath, you know, she would she would go back off on her on her uh, strict tangents about morality and and things like that. So it was an interesting, always an interesting uh, cat and mouse game. Like you say, she would send me off on these missions. I don't know what else to call them. She would be looking for something or. She needed something, and, and I was tasked to go get it. And if I did, if I did the right thing, then it would prove to her that, you know, that God was behind this, and then she would confide in me more. And even if I was very lucky, she would send me her memoirs. And then ultimately, you did get her unpublished memoirs and her diary. Talk a little bit about what the experience was like for you reading these things for the first time. The memoirs had clearly been written very late in her life. She um, she had talked about these memoirs since 1963, but it was very obvious in reading them that she had written them in the final final years of her of her life since we had been talking. Many of the stories were things we had talked about over the phone already, so they were things I knew. But mostly it was really her spirituality and um almost like a almost like a mysticism, right? In the greater hand of God and everything. So it wasn't all that helpful. And I really struggled with how to tell her this because she did not want it edited. She wanted it published exactly as it was. It was kind of her dying wish, right? To have her voice be heard and her voice was full of uh God and fate and biblical references and I didn't know how to tell her that, you know, no publisher was gonna touch this. Um so we talked about self-publishing, and she passed away really before we got very far along in the conversations. But I knew really that, you know, she wanted to say something, but I she didn't she wasn't quite selling herself the right way. Um, and so then, you know, about about a, a year ago, I guess it was, um, I had already found a publisher for for the books that I was writing and was um, clipping along, but. Um, still really struggling with, I, I knew Madame knew at the end of her life, and I had all this research about the beginning, but I, I couldn't hear her voice as a 30-year-old first lady in the palace. And this diary came to my attention. Um, a retired Army captain named James Fenback got in touch with me and said that he had something he really had to show me. So long story short, I fly to uh, New York to check it out. We meet in Queens, and he, he brings out you know, this old cardboard kind of water-stained journal. And I still, I'm so skeptical. I can't believe this is really it. I mean, and I start looking through it and I cross-reference, you know, dates and times and places that she had told me that she was. And sure enough, it sure seems authentic to me. So I am no um, forensic, you know, expert. I know James is in contact with different archives that will need a lot more substantiation before they can really ascertain where, how this came into his possession and how authentic it is. But I, he certainly got me. <laughs> so, um, and in this journal, I really hear Madame New talking, and she is talking about books that she's read and um, movies that she has seen and frustrations with her family, just 
um, being in a fight with her husband or she can't believe he actually remembered their anniversary one year. So the diary stretches from about 1958 to uh, 1963, right before the Buddhist crisis starts. And that's when she stops writing. Um, but it's really, instead of being this great spiritual, oh, you know, uh, God is the reason for all of this, it's really a very everyday look at what life was like in the palace and, um, and the, little, the little things that make, that make life interesting, right? How different was her perception of the reality of that time from what we saw here in America? Madame New was convinced that they were on the right track. And anyone who said differently sort of wasn't on board. You know, she gave the pressmen a lot of trouble because she believed that the role of the press was to support um, their their regime and their agenda. And every time the press criticized her, she couldn't believe it. You know, she thought, well, you must be in league with the communists if you're trying to bring us down because here we are trying to stand up to the communists. And so... You know, if you don't like us, you must be communists. So there definitely were, you know, and, and to the Americans, it's like, well, the freedom of the press, we, we have to call it as we see it. If you're not the right person for the job, let's get the right person in. Um, about the, the Buddhists, you know, here in the United States, they were seen as, uh, you know, peace-loving, you know, religious, devoted. Um, why would they ever light themselves on fire unless unless they really were... Um, being persecuted, religious persecution, and Madame New saw instead what a loose organization it was and how easy it would have been for the communists to infiltrate this group of Buddhists. So um, in that case, you know, they were both right. Madame New's um, predictions about the Buddhists being a very loose organization that could be taken advantage of by the communists um, proved true a few, just a few years later. Um, and, you know, the United States perception of the Buddhists as being, you know, this very uh, tolerant and peace-loving uh, group of group of people, uh, you know, they, there was, there wasn't, I don't think the, the no regime intended to persecute, persecute the Buddhists necessarily, but, um, but certainly they weren't given favors like the Catholics and the regime were. What did she think of her image as this dragon lady? To be honest with you, I don't think she minded. I think that by the end of her life, to be remembered was more important than to be forgotten. So if she had just kind of faded away completely, I, you know, I think she would have thought that was really just kind of a waste. And so better to be remembered as this dragon lady than to, than to be completely forgotten. Um, that is just my opinion. She, she never said to me out loud, oh, I loved being called the Dragon Lady, but she did say things about how people thought that she was so powerful and that that was very flattering to her. Um, she was very, always very kind of tickled by the notion that 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 people thought she was very important. And so, yeah, I don't. <laughs> I think in the end, um, you know, Madame New and I had like five years of telephone conversations. We talked about all sorts of things, and we set times to meet and places to meet, but in the end, she never would meet me face-to-face, -face. and I, I think part of that has to do with, with your question, you know, how she perceived herself, and at the end of the day, if she had let me in, um, I would have seen an, an old woman, frail, no longer beautiful, young, uh, you know, at the height of her power, 
And I think that was something that she could never quite come to peace with, that she just, she would rather that I remembered her and knew her as this, as, as the picture from the book, rather than a, um, a faded version of that. Monique Demaray, the book is Finding the Dragon Lady, the Mystery of Vietnam's Madame Nu. Monique, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Jeff, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you.